Welcome to Life Minute TV, your life, your minute on everything lifestyle. Celebrity buzz, music and movie news, fashion, beauty, home style, wellness, and more. He's dressed the Sex Pistols, collabed with David Bowie, and has played alongside the likes of Patti Smith, Blondie's Clem Burke, and so many others. Award-winning British fashion designer, musician, and author Keenan Dufty stopped by our Life Minute studios in New York City recently to tell us all about his journey and new album, King Boy Vandals, with his band, Slinky Vagabond. So tell me, what have you been up to lately? Busy. <laughs> Very busy during uh, the end of the pandemic just been you know cranking out the music cranking out a bit of fashion as well and doing a, a lot of promo for the record too which is great fun take me through the record tell us the name of it some of the songs we're going to hear on it and what it's all about yeah so our new album is called king boy vandals which is an anagram of slinky vagabond and it's 10 tracks that were recorded mainly in italy during the pandemic with my musical partner, Fabio Fabri, who's the producer, guitarist, and co-writer of the record. And we were fortunate enough to get everything done before lockdown really started. So we had all of the vocals, all of the instrumentation, uh, the backing tracks all done. And then once the pandemic started, we thought, okay, this is an opportunity to sort of rope in some of our buddies who now have a little bit of time and can contribute uh, to some of the tracks, you know. So it was actually a really good creative opportunity for us. And we got folks like Midgeor, who's famously known as one of the co-founders of Live Aid and the leader of Ultravox and Visage. His resume is too numerous to list, but Midge came on board and played on a couple of tracks. We have David Torn, who's part of the Bowie band, who played on a track. Uh, my friend Richard Fortas from Guns N' Roses, who came in, and yeah, a whole bunch of guys. There are three different bass players on the album. My buddy Martin Turner from Wishbone Ash, who I've known for 35 years or something like that and Tony Bowers from some Simply Red. So, you know, it's kind of a great list of friends and our, our, our sort of dearest, nearest and dearest who were able to give some time to put down some tunes. So yeah, it's great. And like you said, like this probably wouldn't have happened if this was normal year, right? It absolutely wouldn't have happened because all of these people have really busy schedules. And so suddenly they've found themselves, you know, locked down at home. And in this day and age, everybody has some kind of digital studio. So it was great. It was a great opportunity to get them involved. And everybody said yes. You know, it was, we kind of made a list of people and everyone we asked said yes. So it was great. I think for the sound of it, is there like one of your favorites on, the, on there? Like, just take me through it a little bit. So the album is really the sum of its parts. It's got a lot of glam influence, uh, a, a lot of sort of British rock and roll, British punk. It's kind of the music that Fabio and myself grew up with that we've been playing all of our lives. And, you know, some of the tracks were tracks that had actually been written before this recording session. There are a couple of tracks that I, I demoed already and some that, that Fabio had done. So we kind of brought everything into the mix and made this melting pot. And the way it worked out, I think, was really well because it's a very cohesive sound. And it's kind of pinned together by Fabio and myself as the core of the band. And the idea with Slinky Vagabond is it's got this sort of revolving list of players, or at least that's become the idea now. You know, it's, uh, it's sort of this mixture, this potpourri of different musicians, and each of them contributes to the sound, and that reinforces our, our original vision. You know, they come in and, for instance, Midge played on a track called Prima Donna. We love that track, and it very much has a sound of 
Rich Kids, which was a band that Midge formed in the late 70s with Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols. And so it was great to actually have Midge on that track. It's kind of an homage to that band, and it actually has one of the guys from that band playing on it. Now, are you going to take this on tour? Like, what happens next? Yeah, we hope to. Uh, once we are able to actually do some shows, you know, we have the logistical issue of myself in New York City, Fabio in Florence, Italy, you know, so there's a little bit of logistics involved, but we've been offered some shows here in New York already. So I think we'll, we'll do that probably in the fall and then maybe try and tag into some festivals next summer, you know, in Europe, because that's a kind of great time to get out there. And I think everybody's hungry to get back to live music again, you know, so this is kind of the perfect time to take the show on the road. Now, who are some of your musical influences and how did you actually like get into music? Was it in your family or how did you get involved? I got into music as a little kid watching a British TV show called Top of the Pops, which was uh, national television, BBC, every Thursday evening at 7pm. And most of the country waited to see not just the countdown of the charts, but also new music that was coming up in the charts. So that was the first place that you saw people like David Bowie, Roxy Music, and even a lot of the punk bands that came along later in the 70s. And they were very much my influence. You know, I grew up on a diet of glam rock, of David Bowie, of Mark Bolan, of The Sweets. And then once punk exploded, that gave everybody the permission to kind of pick up a guitar and play out of tune and sing out of tune, which I still do, actually. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it get, kind of gave us the freedom to just express ourselves. So you got a whole generation of kids who started making fanzines, making music, making their own clothes. And, you know, that was a massive inspiration to me. It's a sense of freedom that I think, you know, young people enjoy today, you know, exposing their expression on the internet. They're able to do that today through Instagram, through TikTok, you know, through all of these platforms. Back in the 70s, it was a photocopied stapled fanzine that you would sell at a, a show for like 50p, you know, but you initially, you know, made it for yourself and then found a little audience. And that was true with the music. It was true with the fashion. And I think it really snowballed into the 80s. That's kind of why you had this explosion of creativity in the 80s. So was it the music first that came that kind of snowballed your creativity into fashion? Like, or do you think one came before the other? It was totally music that got me involved in image. I don't really like fashion that much. I've never really been a fan of the fashion industry. And I, I, as a designer, I kind of operated a little bit outside of the mainstream. But it was really the image of those musicians, you know, that I would see on TV and you would really want to emulate them. You would think, you know, where does David Bowie get that fantastic jumpsuit from? Where does, how does he get his hair like that, you know? How does Brian Ferry put together that look with leopard skin and, or, or Brian Eno with a feather boa? And you'd be like amazed and think they came literally from another planet. And I think it was, it was really punk that then allowed you to, do, to make an appropriation of those kind of looks because you really couldn't walk down the street in a, in a glitter lame suit, at least not in the town where I grew up. You would kind of you know, get chased by a bunch of hooligans. But punk actually allowed you to do that because you kind of had a lot of outsider culture that suddenly was knitted together in a really amazing way. You know, the punk in its initial stage was very much the LTBGQX community coming together with outsiders from all different walks of life and creating something new. And I always say, you know, without the gay community, punk would not have existed. It kind of came out of that sort of subculture at the time that really existed. Uh, the style, the expression, the aesthetics, it was really very much part of culture and, and of developing that culture. 
How would you say that punk, Brit pop type of style is like the thread of your designs? Yeah, I mean, I, I started designing in New York City, at least in the 90s. And when I came here, the Britpop explosion was was really underway in the UK. And I sort of uh, imported that style. And it was very much, you know, a, a British street fashion, which at the time wasn't necessarily so mainstream in America. You know, it actually took some time for me to find an audience with it. And initially, it, it was those folks that, that kind of understood the aesthetic and got it in a certain way. And that really gradually snowballed to the point where, you know, I was able to take my collection in the 2000s to target so you know it went from being a very niche thing to being really part of the mainstream in the US and across the whole nation and that was actually an amazing I mean you love Bowie right yeah I think we all do but like one of your inspirations and now you're making designs that are off of that and there's even more to it right you designed for CFDA yeah so I was really lucky in the mid-2000s David Bowie had had worn some of my clothes at various stages and I was very lucky that I was able to connect with him and actually design a collection in collaboration with him for Target and you know that was a great opportunity to kind of work with one of your heroes you know it's something that you long for as a, as a creative but you don't necessarily think it's going to happen also, the outcome was really wonderful because he was a great person. He was very witty. He was very generous in his creative expression. And he kind of allowed for someone else, in this case myself, to really express myself within that project. And, you know, it's, I've been very fortunate to work with Bowie, to work with the Sex Pistols. I dressed them for one of their American tours and then went on to become friends with some members of the band and actually create the first version of Slinky Vagabond with Glenn Matlock, who's the bass player in original Sex Pistol, one of the original founders of the band. So, you know, there's been, I've had a lot of uh, synchronicity and, and luck in my career. And, you know, I'm very, very grateful for that. Yeah, it just seems like fashion and music, you know, here at Life, we always have seen that go hand in hand. But with you, that just seems like that's your life. Really, it was music in the, in the beginning. And that kind of led me into really aspiring to create an image, which led me to go to fashion school. And I went to fashion school purely because I would see folks in glossy magazines and all the best dress ones that looked like they were having a best time went to Central St. Martin's. So I thought, I've got to go there. You know, that looks like the place to go. And it wasn't really, there wasn't an ambition or a career behind it other than going to a place that looked like everybody had a great time. So, you know, but then once I got into that, you know, fast flowing river, suddenly the ambition came, you know, the, the, the drive came to actually do something with it. And I didn't waste a moment in college. I was making stuff and selling stuff constantly, hanging it in the window of the college to attract passers-by, you know. And, and I think, again, that's something that, you know, today young people have the internet, they have that window to the world in a really brilliant way. That's never really existed before. You know, for our record, we can put out a record ourselves and, you know, get it to a global audience and to folks that bought my collections in Japan and, and in the UK and around Europe and across America. Um, purely because of this great invention, the internet. You know, you can have that global reach and everybody has that opportunity. It's wonderful. David Bowie sadly passed away in 2016, as you know, the whole world knows. And um, the Council of Fashion Designers of America, of which I'm a member, asked me if I would style a tribute to him, which took place at Hammerstein Ballroom in June of that year. And it was an amazing tribute. We had Michael C. Hall, famously known as the, the main actor from Dexter. We had Tilda Swinton to give 
the the speech and the the uh, the honor uh, to David posthumously, obviously. And we had um, Kansai Yamamoto, who I contacted in Japan, loaned us some of the looks that David had worn on stage. And Donatella Versace remade the suit from the Life on Mars video. So we have uh, Michael C. Hall singing changes, and we have these three models coming out with this amazing hair that was colored by David Adams, who's an amazing colorist, and Peter Gray, who's an amazing stylist, both of whom I've worked with for many, many years. So they had the full Bowie plumage and the, the, these you know, original outfits. And it was, I think, a really wonderful tribute to David. You know, it was done in a very, very authentic way. Um, and I was really, really grateful to be part of that and to be invited to, to be involved. So it was, uh, it was great. Is there anyone that has worn your clothes that you were just like blown away, away by or anyone that you're just proud that has decided to wear your fashion? I mean, I, I'm, I'm always very grateful uh, when anyone wears my clothes, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be somebody famous. I, I think many designers will say that they've been stopped in unusual places in airports or whatever, or, you know, pulled to one side in a nightclub and someone tells you that, you know, I, I love your clothes, I collect them, I wear them all the time. And I have been lucky enough to, to have those experiences. I've been lucky enough to also have famous people tell me that too, which is, you know, kind of uh, people that you admire telling you, I like your stuff. And, you know, it, it's a thrill. It's a thrill that never uh, grows dull. But it, it doesn't matter whether it's someone who's in the spotlight or someone who just accosts you on the street. You know, if, if, if somebody tells you they appreciate your creative expression, I think it's, you know, you have to be amazingly grateful about that. You know, it, it's, it's such an accolade and, and it's something that I hope continues. You know, with our record, we've had, you know, some very nice responses from people and through the internet, you know, it's, it's great because Obviously, family and friends get in touch with you and say, oh, I love the record. But then people from all around the world, I've had folks from Japan emailing me. I've had people from Europe and people from all over America saying, you know, I love the record and I'm listening to the single and, you know, I can't wait to hear more and can't wait to get the vinyl. <laughs> Take me through your book and what that's all about. Sure. Tell us the name. For me, music and fashion have always been kind of together. And uh, a few years ago, I co-wrote a book called Rebel Rebel Anti-Style with Paul Gorman, who's a British writer. And it really documents 10 aspects of anti-style. So iconic garments, the leather motorcycle jacket, the white t-shirts, the blue jean, that have been rebellious items of clothing and continue to be and are always reinvented throughout history, whether it's back to James Dean and Marlon Brando in the 50s, or you know Michael Jackson in his leather thriller jacket. Uh, these are all different um, sort of iterations of those garments. You know the T-shirt went from a white plain T-shirt to being something that carried a band name or a crazy slogan um, and became a an icon of, of rebellious style. And it will continue to be. You know younger artists today take those images and reinvent them all the time. You know whether it's BTS or whether it's Lady Gaga. You know, whoever it is today is, is taking those sort of totems and, you know, making them theirs for a new generation. So it, it's, it's this sort of evolving rebellious style that kind of keeps inspiring us throughout the ages. Awesome. Anything that we should like be looking into there for? A section that I love is actually about prom dresses, which kind of looks at the taking of uh, the prom dress and reinventing it in grunge, for example by Courtney Love, but then also Kurt Cobain wearing a dress too. So there was kind of that gender fluidity, you know, which I think is something that 
Um, each of these pieces are, you know, dual gender. The, the motorcycle jacket that you see on every single person in the street today, um, it doesn't matter who's wearing it. It kind of came from a male item of clothing, but now it's, it's totally gender fluid, as is the T-shirt, as are jeans, as are, you know, footwear like sneakers. Um, you know, they kind of came from a particular area of fashion, but they're sort of worn by everyone. And, and, but I particularly love the, the, the kind of evolution of the prom dress and how, for example, there's a great British band, they're very underrated, called The Slits. They were an all-girl punk band and kind of the blueprint for many bands that have followed. And the way that they, they dressed, their singer, Ari Up, wore, you know, a tutu over with, with Dr. Martin boots, you know, with like kind of a very mashed up style and the whole band dressed like that. And I think, you know, that's something that's taken 40, 50 years almost to really become accepted in society, you know, that anybody can wear these things. So, you know, you can be um, Willow Smith, for example, and be, you know, expressing yourself in a, in, in a, in a kind of very gender neutral way and be blazing a trail. You know, it's, it's really amazing that these items of clothing have just uh, really been, become indelible in society and in culture. Well, how about the mashing of, uh, of the US punk scene and the uh, like punk styles and the UK punk styles? Because like, one thing I noticed, especially in the late 70s, was um, almost like a, uh, a fluidity of styles like going from the West Coast punk scene and all yeah. the punk scene. It's interesting with the sort of fashion of punk, but also the whole ideology of punk. There's always this great argument, where did punk come from? Did it come from the US? Did it come from the UK? Personally, I think you have to go back to Iggy and the Stooges. Uh, you have to go back to the Velvet Underground. So it kind of came out of the US. The germ of punk came out of the US. The style of punk was defined in many different ways. And that's something that I've always really loved. You know, in my book, there's a great picture of Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. And she's got a T-shirt that says girls invented punk rock. So, you know, there's all of these different takes on where the sound came from, where the style came from. And I think in what I do in, in either, whether it's musical, whether it's fashion, those two ideas mashed together have always been really, really interesting. You know, looking at the West Coast style of punk, which was obviously influenced by the weather and the culture and society, you know, skateboarding, that whole side of punk that we didn't have in the UK, you know, there, there was... Uh, just the weather of punk in the UK means that, you know, you have to wear pretty protective punk clothing most of the time. So, you know, I try to explore that a little bit in the book and it's certainly, that sound certainly comes across in our music. And how about um, on the, like, you know, with the videos for this album, seem to have a very nostalgic kind of throwback look to them, which works perfectly with the songs. Yeah, so Fausto Fabri, who's the son of my music partner, Fabio, has directed and produced a number of videos for us for the record. Um, a couple of them for the first single, The Beauty in You, is very sort of nostalgic, kind of black and white, uh, found footage imagery of old New York. Um, and it's kind of really exploring the beauty and decay. And that's the idea of the song, actually. The song, The Beauty in You, sounds like it's a love song, but it's actually about, you know, those sort of abandoned towns, uh, like the Salton Sea, um, you know, in, in, in the desert in California, or, you know, Chernobyl, which is kind of abandoned after a, a, a nuclear catastrophe. So you have all of these sort of uh, elements of beauty that I find really beautiful, but they're not necessarily traditional, traditional beauty. So Fausto captured that in the video for The Beauty in You, but we also made a second video 
because we were trying to figure out how to do this live in some way. So we did a Zoom video uh, with myself in New York, with Fabio in his studio in Florence, uh, and we recorded an acoustic version of it. So we have a couple of different videos. And actually the home video is a lot of fun because it's basically me sitting in my living room against the brick wall and you know Fabio playing his guitar. Uh, and it's just basically voice, vocal, and a bit of keyboard. And we did another video recently, which is in a similar vein. And Fausto actually created that with a special effect to look like a comic book. So as I'm singing the lyrics, there's a word bubble and there are sound effects and there's like, you know, continue after the next issue. And so um, he's been very creative with a lot of the, the video expression. This is a self-produced record, it's self-produced content. So, you know, we're doing it with uh, limited availability. Uh, it's all about the creativity. It's actually, what can we, how can we get the most creativity out of, you know, the confines that we have, whether it's the confines of the pandemic or whether it's the confines of a limited budget or whatever. And that's really the whole idea. And I think the videos really speak to that in a great way. Is there a fact, a fun fact that nobody knows about you that you can share? A fun fact that nobody knows about me? <laughs> Ooh, that's a very good question. I don't know, actually. I sang in, when I was a kid, I sang in the choir. Uh, so I was, I've got some great photographs of me with a little ruff and a choir boy outfit looking very angelic. So uh, I don't think our, our, our choir master was expecting me to turn out the way I have, probably. <laughs> the rest of the choir know about that, but most other people don't. So that's a, a fun fact that not many people know. And then what's next for you? What are you guys working on next? We, well, actually, it's interesting. We started recording more music. Uh, so we're, we're sort of working on a, a second record. We've recorded about four or five songs for it, which we had the bare bones of, uh, again, right up to the pandemic. So, you know, up until kind of the beginning of March of 2020, we'd had these, these tracks in the can, and we're actually working with other musicians who are uh, sort of collaborating on those too. So, you know, the next, the next record is inevitable and probably on the way. I think a lot of musicians have been able to really focus on writing and recording during the pandemic and that's been one of the great outcomes you have from Taylor Swift to Paul Weller releasing two albums a year you know so I think it's a it's a good moment actually it's allowed a lot of people to take pause and and really dive into their their writing and their creativity so uh, yeah look out for that it will be coming soon. The New York City punk scene the underground scene has really embraced you. Well the, the first version of the band Slinky Vagabond actually started uh, with myself, Earl Slick, who's Bowie's guitar player for many, many years, an amazing rock and roll legend, Clem Burke, the drummer in Blondie, and Glenn Matlock from Sex Pistols. And we were invited to play at the Jerry Ramone Birthday Bash, which is an annual fundraiser in New York City. So our first gig was supporting the New York Dolls, which was pretty fabulous. As a kid, I had a punk band called Sordid Details, and my two favorite bands were the New York Dolls and the Sex Pistols. So, you know, to, to, to actually have that moment, to be on stage, you know, with a Sex Pistol and kind of opening up for the dolls was really amazing. And I think it speaks to the fact that the underground scene in New York, when I started my fashion line, they really embraced me. And the underground music scene also embraced, you know, what I was doing and continued to do that. We're in an interesting moment in, in New York because that underground is starting to bubble up again. We had sort of very, very high rents for many, many years, and the uh, you know recent pandemics kind of calmed everything down. There are a lot of new music venues coming back, and certainly in the boroughs in Brooklyn and Queens, great music venues like TVI, for example, 
And I think it's a great moment for the underground again. I think, you know, New York is really coming back and all major cities around the world are, are sort of surging back with a, a momentum in underground culture. To see more of this interview, visit our website, lifeminute.tv.